Father, I thank you for another opportunity to be in your house. Thank you that we get to come here together, worship you together. Father, I ask this morning that you'd have your way in whispering into our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come move up and down the aisles, in amongst the seats. Holy Spirit, I ask that it would not be my words, but a whisper from heaven that touches our hearts, that, that, that we would hear what it is you are saying to us through the message this morning. I pray you'll bless every single person that's here, that we'll walk out bigger in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your seats. <clears throat> I'm a bit throaty this morning. Hopefully my voice holds up. How you all going? Are you good? Well, if I'm going to work my voice, you're going to work your voices, okay? Mai, can you work your voice to start this morning? Yeah, awesome. All right, well, here we are. It's August. I can't believe it's August. And um, the theme for August is biblical paradoxes, but we made it a little bit cooler by calling it the upside-down kingdom. And, um, you know, I've found in reading the Bible that the way Jesus did things was so countercultural, and um, everything seems back to front and upside down. And um, can I tell you that when he proposed some of his principles 2,000 years ago, that they were just as challenging then as they are now? Because the world and our human nature doesn't understand a system where servanthood is the greatest calling. It doesn't understand a system where you actually get more by giving. Everything's upside down and back to front. But what we want to look at in August, and all of our services in August are going to look at some of the biblical paradoxes because there are so many. But do you know what? If we actually get it, if we actually catch some of these keys, there are huge implications for our lives. Like we can benefit from doing things God's way. Amazing. And um, sometimes we just don't understand it because it flies fully in the face of the world view and common culture. And so we want to look in August at what some of these keys are because it is back to front and it is upside down and it's hard for us to get our heads around. But if we do, we will be so much better off for it. Okay, so this morning I'm really excited to open it up to start this theme. And um, I want to talk about one of the most uh, misunderstood topics of our generation. C.S. Lewis said this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's so true. And that pretty much sums up this theme is we can try everything that the world knows and it still doesn't hit the mark. So then the only explanation is, I was made for something more than this. There's got to be more to this. There's got to be more to it because, you know, we live in a generation where the topic we want to talk about this morning is so misunderstood because it makes us uneasy, it makes us vulnerable, we don't understand its power, and so we avoid it. Um, and, you know, this topic flies full in the face of current culture, but also Western culture, which is so commercialized with capitalism and materialistic way of thinking. This topic that I want to unpack is actually one of the most, I mean, I guess you'd even be considered a fool for ascribing to it. 
um, because it just doesn't make sense. We believe we've been taught about the noble cause of human rights. You know, everyone's got that picket going. Human rights movement is huge across the earth, and yet slavery and human trafficking is bigger now than it ever has been. We're also told constantly in popular culture, look after number one. Look after yourself, make sure you're all good, and and you'll be fine, you'll be happy. And yet the mass production of antidepressant medication is happening at an unprecedented rate. And so common culture is feeding us lies. It's feeding us absolute untruth, and we're not joining some very obvious dots. And so this morning, I want to look at that, and actually this whole month is going to be about joining some very obvious dots that common culture wants us not to get, wants us not to understand, and it's so simple in the Word of God. It's actually in black and white, and many people go, no, it couldn't possibly be that simple. Actually, it is. Actually, it is. And I've noticed that the kingdom of God is countercultural. When pop culture says take, heaven says give. When pop culture says, sue for what's been taken from you, heaven says, bless your enemies. When culture says, defend yourself and plead your case, scripture says, I will serve justice, just be still. When heaven says, when, when the world says, pay back, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, The Bible says, love your enemies, bless those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you. Those who try to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. You've got to lose it to find it. It doesn't make sense. It's upside down. It's back to front. It doesn't make sense to us. And I want to talk around the topic of humility. Jesus was addressing some hypocritical and hard leadership in one situation where he's in the synagogue, he's in the temple, and and the Pharisees and the rulers and the religious leaders are there. And he tells them off. He's basically saying, you know what, you put heavy burdens on people, and yet you won't lift a finger yourself. And he says this in Matthew 23, but he who is the greatest among you will be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Then his own disciples in another situation are walking along, debating who's the greatest among them. And Jesus says to them, he says, anyone who desires to be first will be last and the servant of all. And in another situation, we've got two disciples who I think their brothers are talking to each other about how about I sit on one side of Jesus in heaven and you sit on the other side. And the other 10 disciples are getting really annoyed at them for being like that. And Jesus calls them over and he says to them, it shouldn't be like this with you. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be the servant. And whoever desires to be first shall be the slave of all. Somehow we sit in church and we can listen to teaching, we can read scripture, and we continue to believe the lies of the world. The serpent's lies, same as in the garden, when he whispers to us, it can't possibly be true. 
God's holding out on you. What do you mean you have to be a servant? That doesn't make sense. What do you mean you have to submit yourself to people who are hurting you? That doesn't make any sense. God's holding out on you. God's going to make a fool out of you. You know what? You could do a better job running your own life. He whispers that to us, just like he did to Adam and Eve all those years ago. He still does it today. And it's all lies and actually puts us in a trap. We are fallen vessels in a fallen, corrupt world, and that's what we are. Trying to preserve ourselves, our fallen selves, will never give us the life we're looking for. It's only a supernatural antidote that will cure us of that. It's only a supernatural thing. It's the eternal battle, self versus God, pride versus humility. And as I started to think about this, I um, opened up one of my favorite books. I don't know if anyone's read The Tale of Three Kings by Jean Edwards. Has anyone read this? Amazing. I actually think anyone in leadership, any Christian business person needs to read this at least once every couple of years. I try to read it once a year. It's an amazing story. And, um, and I want to sort of steal the concept out of here. The Tale of Three Kings is... Um, The story in the Old Testament, it spans over 29 chapters, and obviously we can't read 29 chapters this morning, but 29 chapters in 1st and 2nd Samuel, um, about 50 or 60 years, and it's the story of three kings, King Saul, King David, and David's son, Absalom. And so this morning, I'd like to introduce to you three kings, um, so that we can just skip through 29 chapters really quickly and in a really fun way. Have we got some kings in the house? Here they are. (coughs) So let me introduce to you Saul, David, and Absalom. Absalom, where's your sword? Oh, you've got it. Good. That's a real sword, everybody. Okay, so let me first introduce you to Saul. Saul's going to tell us a little bit about his story. I am. Samuel the prophet anointed me as king over Israel, first ever king of God's people. I was always waiting for that prophet to tell me God's will. I shouldn't have to wait. I was the anointed king. I knew best and so went ahead and did what I thought was right. Little did I know that in the meantime, this prophet was off anointing some shepherd boy as the next king. This made me furious. As much as I hated this kid, he always ended up in my presence, slaying the giant, playing music to calm my nerves, marrying my daughter, befriending my king, and winning the hearts of Israel. I couldn't have thrown, I couldn't have my throne stolen by some lonely shepherd boy. He wasn't even the eldest of his family. So I hunted him like a dog that he was, hiding in caves and forests, always evading me, driving me crazy. So that's Saul. And we read that Saul ended up becoming so consumed with jealousy and pride that he did lose his mind. Now we know Cam's not like that. But um, <laughs> he, lost, he lost it. His own pride and jealousy sent him crazy. And I've noticed that prideful, jealous people are crazy people. (laughs) And um, 
That was funny, wasn't it, Esther? <laughs> but what ended up happening is that Saul died in battle and he was consumed with his own self and his own desires and, and he just, I mean, just spiraled down this, this spiral of pride and ended up dying um, in battle. But I want to introduce to you King David. This is the young punk that, David, that Saul was telling us about. And um, so, David, tell us a little bit about your story. Well, um, I don't know why God chose me. I was a nobody in the back hills looking after sheep, minding my own business, really, looking after the little that I had. And even that, it wasn't mine, it was my father's. Then one day I'm, I was summoned back to the house at the request of a man of God. I bowed. Nothing was said, but I felt the oil running down my head and clothes. Even a simple farm boy like me, I knew what that meant. If this was God's will, it could only be in his timing. My only desire was to serve my God and my king, the king I loved and feared. So when he started seeking my life, I would not stand against him. He was the Lord's anointed um, for that hour. I would serve and honour. I would not defend myself against the king of Israel. When the king throws a spear at you, the choice is yours. Throw, throw one back and defy God himself. Or do nothing. Pretend you sow nothing and say nothing. And continue to honour the Lord and his appointed leadership. As a result, I was exiled for many years. Joined over time by others who had offended our troubled king. Outlaws, thieves and no-gooders. But I would not raise a hand against the king. Even when it appeared he had been delivered into my hands. When he was killed at war at the hands of our enemies, the nation called for me and I found myself leading God's own people. But who was I but a lonely shepherd boy turned broken outlaw? This throne, it was not mine, it was God's. Awesome. Isn't that cool? It's my voice. <clears throat> and so we read on that when David did reluctantly become king and he had been anointed several years before, and hunted by Saul, um, David then did eventually rule God's people and he ruled really well. And he had sons and daughters. Um, many of them we don't know. Some of them are written about in the scripture. One in particular, his name's Absalom. And um, I want to introduce him to you now and he's going to tell us a little bit about his story. I was a son who saw every fault in his father, every weakness, I was determined in my heart that where he failed, I would succeed. Others agreed with my observations and spurred me on, convincing me that I could do a better job as the leader of Israel. In the end, it was the people that caused me to rise up against him. I swore I never would, but seeing the failures of my father's leadership led me to rebellion against him. So Absalom's testimony reminds me of um, a day in like Labor Caucus. And <laughs> we see him try to take the throne from his dad. Um, and eventually, Absalom also dies. And he dies on the way to confronting his dad in battle to take the throne. And the picture is so, oh my gosh, the picture of pride and vanity. They say that Absalom had long hair. And on the way on his horse, 
with his sword to take the throne from his dad, he got caught up in a tree by his hair and was hung and died that way. Like the picture of vanity and pride right there. And so here we have our three kings and that book, The Tale of Three Kings, tells this story so, so amazingly. It's really challenging. But um, let's give it up for our kings, King Saul, David and Absalom. Thank you very much. They just summed up 50 years and 29 uh, chapters. But um, here we have, you know, when we look at these three kings and in light of this topic, the upside down kingdom, we can very easily group Saul and Absalom together as prideful men and David stands alone as a humble, humble man. And so I want to look at this and unpack this in a practical way for our lives. And I have two thoughts for you on the topic of humility for those of you who take notes. Because humility is not so much what we do as a posture of the heart. Humility is a conscious choice. Humility is something that we need to cultivate in our lives because it's not human nature. Um, the scholar J.I. Packer describes humility as being shy because he says, the moment that you stop to assess your condition of humility, your focus becomes self and humility hides in the shadows. It's a very amazing, interesting thing because we can't focus on humility because it becomes about self and yet we need to cultivate humility. And so if we look at the lives of our three kings in First and Second Samuel, we can learn a lot about pride and we can learn a lot about Humility. My first point, first of two, is simply this. Die before pride kills you. Die before it kills you. I remember sitting in a staff meeting probably about seven years ago and uh, we had the privilege that day of hearing from Christine Kane. And she was teaching us, you know, whatever she was teaching us, but this one comment that she made was, get really good at dying. And then she laughed, this really sick, sinister kind of laugh. And all the staff, you know, kind of joined in, ha, ha, ha. And I remember sitting there thinking, I have a feeling I don't know what she's talking about. Like, I know what it's like to be heartbroken and I've had my fair share of hardships. But for some reason, I knew in my heart of hearts she was talking about something else. I knew what it was like to feel like I was dying but she was talking about choosing to die. She was talking about just get good at dying every day. And so I started to meditate on what that might mean. And over time, you know, reading books like this and being in the Word of God and trying to understand this upside down kingdom has helped me understand this. In our world, every second song on the radio talks about, you know, you overcome heartbreak, right, by getting a bigger car, by looking awesome, by, you know, look at me. I'm driving a big, bigger car. I'm more famous. I've got more friends. I look great. I feel great. I don't need you, you know. And we see movies where the battered fighter gets up every time. He gets up every time and saves the day. And we, we read and we see and we hear this notion of get back up, fight, fight, fight. Ethan Winston Churchill, the great leader, is known best for his never Never, 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 never give up speech. Except that it was Saul and Absalom who lived like that. 
It was Saul and Absalom that got the bigger cars and the prettier girls and more land and more bling and all that sort of thing. It was Saul and Absalom who lived that way. David did not live that way. We're taught to fight hard, never give up, take what's ours, never let anyone make a fool out of us and to prove our critics wrong. But Saul, uh, David, on the other hand, had spears thrown at him by Saul and defamatory accusations thrown at him by his own son and he never rose up to challenge those two men. He allowed those attacks to defeat and batter him time and time again. He allowed the spears, the knives and the swords, physical and metaphoric, to maim and mutilate him to the core. He allowed the attacks and hardships to destroy every part of him that was prideful and self-seeking. What Saul and Absalom didn't realize is that God would bring their assaults against David to bring out the very best in him. And as David rose up from the aftermath of massacre of self, all that remained of him was a humble, broken, and God-honoring vessel. Just want to encourage you this morning. There's a Mexican proverb that says, that which tried to bury me knew not that I was really a seed. Jesus put it this way in John 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it does fall to the ground and die, it bears much fruit. And then it goes on to say, he who tries to hold on to his life will lose it. He will remain alone. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. We are seeds. We are seeds. And the purpose of a seed is to be buried in the earth, in darkness, in obscurity. In the earth, it breaks. In the earth, it comes apart. It comes undone. In that undoing, it produces new life. And that new life produces much more seed. Unless it does that, unless it does that, it remains alone it will always only be a lonely, whole seed, never fulfilling its potential because within it is a harvest, within it is an orchard. But unless it goes into that dark place, that cold, dark, lonely place, it will never be what it is intended to be. God does his best work in obscurity. So how do we make this real in your workplace? Maybe you have a soul situation where your boss is throwing spears at you. Maybe at work you have colleagues or people under you who are lying about you like Absalom was lying against David. Maybe like we often find ourselves in these challenging situations that are directly against us as people. But Exodus 14, 14 promises this awesome thing. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Like Sam was saying this morning to our team, you know what? Sometimes the best thing you can do is say nothing and be who God wants you to be in that setting. Let your tongue be free from guile. 
Don't become the thing you hate. Let your actions be above reproach. Be the light in the darkness. Be grace abounding in those unfair situations. You be grace. You be bigger than those situations. We look at the life of David. Oh my gosh, it was so unfair on both sides. From the king over him who he loved and wanted to serve and did nothing against. Was trying to take his life. And then his son, his own son, trying to challenge him for leadership. And yet David never, ever engaged at their level. He always maintained who he was in God. This heart of humility. So Saul and Absalom refused to be taken down, refused to be denied what they wanted, what they were owed, what they thought they were entitled to. Entitlement will make you crazy. Entitlement will send you crazy. They refused to die to self and they were ruled and controlled by selfish desires. They ultimately followed their own feet into the grave. So herein lies the thought, a refusal to die will kill you. And yet David chose to die over and over and over again and was upheld and exalted by God. And so I want to take us into the doctor's office. I want us to diagnose you know, I'm sure this won't apply to anyone else in the room. Okay, this is definitely for someone you know, not you, okay? <laughs> I want us to look at the difference. I want us to look at, and these are just five thoughts on either side that I've taken from different authors. Another great book you can read is Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. It's a whole bunch of authors and thoughts and experiences of my own. But I want to compare someone who is wanting to be first all the time and someone who's choosing to be last. Someone who is like David, who is selfless, and someone who's prideful. I want us to look at what it means to hold on to our lives and what it means to understand my life is not my own. Okay, so on the, on the pride side of things, this kind of person, this person you may know, not you, okay? They have a craving for accomplishment. A craving for accomplishment. They are preoccupied with symbols of accomplishment. What I look like. They're preoccupied and obsessed with that and they are controlled by this pursuit of expansion. Always want more. I always want the next thing. Someone who is a prideful person has this insatiable appetite for accomplishment. They find their value in what they do and what they have. Another thing I've observed is a prideful person has a need for approval. That my, their validation and identity is caught up in what people think. And always trying to impress someone or prove something comes from pride. Comes from pride. This kind of person, I mean, if, if, if you're a first kind of person, then we have character flaws. We have a lack of integrity. We have this temptation to cut corners when people aren't watching. That our character depends on who's watching, how much I can get away with. And so we cut corners 
because our ultimate goal is not who God intended me to be. Our ultimate goal is getting to that accomplishment, that thing, that symbol, that status. And so whatever's going to get me there quicker and easier and more convincingly than everyone else, I'll do that. And so integrity and character is not the main thing. These kind of people also, I've noticed, can have poor relationships around them. And they might have limited or undeveloped people skills because ultimately I don't look at a person for who God designed them to be with their own unique destiny and calling. I look at that person on how they can serve my agenda. And I'll relate to that person on how they can serve me. And so these kind of people can use others. And there's often an aftermath of hurting, disillusioned and tired people in their wake. A prideful person is often easily angered as well. And that's self-explanatory. But on the flip side, because I don't want to just leave you in a state of depression for your neighbor and the friend that you know. But I want us to go, well, how, you know, there's hope. There is actually hope. And David tapped into this. None of these three men were perfect. But one of them chose to be vigilant and diligent with his heart. Because this is all about heart. This is not about pointing a finger or shaming anybody. This is about the posture of our hearts before God and what God has in store for us as a seed. If we're determined to be all that God intended us to be, we need to tap into this hope that is for us to become humble people. And the first one is I've noticed that humble people understand stewardship. As opposed to being a master of my life, I am a steward of my life. I understand that I'm not in control of my life. I understand that God has assigned a purpose to me and that he is the source of my resource and my ability to accomplish that. I also understand that God can choose to go on without me whenever he likes. That the world was spinning before me and it will continue to spin after me. And I play a part today by the grace of God. Not because I'm a master, but because I am a steward. I'm a faithful steward. To Saul and Absalom, it was a throne they could take for themselves. To David, it was God's throne, and God could give it to whoever he wanted, which is why he didn't even rise up against his son. In this book, The Tale of Three Kings, it is so beautiful the way that Gene Edwards writes this monologue in David's head. He's like, you know what? If God wants to give the throne to Absalom, I will let Absalom kill me. It's not my throne. It's God's throne. I will not even defend myself against my son, who is clearly doing the wrong thing. It's powerful and it's so challenging. And yet what happens? He's upheld time after time after time. God will not be made a fool of. You can't checkmate God. He always has another move. He always has the last say. And just when all looks hopeless, if you do the right thing, God will uphold you. He will, I promise. Money back guarantee. A humble person also has a steadfast commitment. There's an old adage that says, there's something wrong with your character if opportunity controls your loyalty. We can't be the sorts of people 
who are distracted and swayed by every new shiny thing that crosses our path. We have to have an unswerving commitment. A humble person is a committed person. A selfless person is a committed person. Number three, humble people identify with a sense of personal mission. And what this means, Gordon Moore writes in his book, is he says, these people understand, I know who I am, and I know who I'm not. And when I know who I'm not, I'm not getting confused and caught up in someone else's sense of mission. I'm not trying to be somebody else. I know who I am and who I'm not. And Gordon MacDonald writes about um, John the baptizer. When all of his disciples and the people were coming around him going, John, look, Jesus is actually taking some of your followers. Your crowd's getting smaller and people are following Jesus. And John says, yeah, that's the way it's meant to be. My purpose was to create a way for people to be able to do that. He knew exactly who he was not. He was not Jesus. And he knew exactly who he was. And he found a deep sense of satisfaction in that. And in the world, it might have looked like, hello, he was starting to fail. His ministry was starting to fail. But in the mission of knowing who I am and who I'm not, he was completely successful. So powerful, and it's so liberating. It's so liberating. I've noticed number four that humble people are peaceful. You notice that? Prideful people are anxious, frustrated, agitated, busy. This over glorification of busy. But humble people just have this sense of ease, this sense of joy. If I can be totally honest with you. I relate to the left side of the column. And by the grace of God, I married a man who is pretty much the right side of the column. And I've learned what it is just to calm the farm. (laughs) Okay, girlfriend, it doesn't need to be resolved this minute. It's okay. God's got it. God's got it. And it's amazing when you take a step back in humility and trust how things tend to resolve themselves. And you're not burning people. And you're not hurting yourself. And you're not lying in bed at night having anxiety attacks. I've found that humble people just tend to be really peaceful, happy people. And humble people have a keen sense of integrity. They understand that character is very expensive so costly and they will do what's right even at the risk of personal expense David did it over and over again and Billy Graham said when wealth is lost nothing is lost when health is lost something is lost when character is lost all is lost humble people are integrous people no matter what no matter what they have this sense of true north, their moral compass is set. No matter where they're going, no matter what's happening, their compass is set. A prideful person will look for quick fixes and self-gratification. A humble person understands that the small hidden seeds of wise choices over a long period of time 
will bear healthy, strong fruit in the long term. A humble person knows what it means to die now in order to live later. So what is this dying to self? I believe it all starts with believing that there's a God who loves you and created you for a purpose. Your identity and your purpose is found in him alone. Not in what you do, not in who you are, not in what people have said or done, not in what you've said and done in the past. Your identity and your purpose are found in God alone and nothing else. And when we can find that and we can believe that is when we start doing and being in a healthy way. In a healthy way. We can abandon ourselves to the purpose of his calling over our lives. And that's where we find the life we're craving for. We all want to make sense of it. We all want to be fulfilled. And yet we chase the end instead of chasing the beginning. God is your beginning. We die to ourselves and we come alive to God. Galatians 2.20 is a very potent, rich scripture. One of my favorite scriptures. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so Churchill was right, never give up if your cause is God's plan and purpose for your life. But if it ever becomes an agenda of self, you need to die again. Number two, second thought is get smaller. Die before it kills you. Number two, get smaller. We look at the lives of our three kings, we see a scary truth. Saul was actually really reluctant. He hid when he knew God wanted to anoint him as the king. He actually started out not wanting to do the thing. He hid and they had to find him and drag him out. He's this big, tall guy, apparently stood a head taller than everyone else, and they had to drag him out of hiding to anoint him as king. But very quickly, he got puffed up in himself. He got bigger, you know, too big for his own lunchbox, so, so to speak. And we see David as well. He, he knew very well, I'm the youngest in my family. My dad didn't even invite me to the anointing party. They had to call me from the back hills. Like he knew very clearly who he wasn't. He knew very clearly all those things about himself and yet was emboldened by the grace of God. You know, many of us are reluctant and it's actually humility that pushes that reluctancy aside and allows God to enable us. But he never sought position and he never protected his position. In fact, he was very, very willing just to even be killed for it. After all, it was God's. All three of them sinned, but that's where the similarities end. We read that when David took another man's wife for himself and he grieved the heart of God, that he immediately fell to his knees and begged God for forgiveness. We're all going to mess up. Pride is going to catch us. It's our response in those times that determines whether we are a seed that dies alone or we're a seed that bears fruit. Whether we allow ourselves to be broken. And David did. He found himself on his knees. 
asking for forgiveness. Saul and Absalom allowed their sins and failures to infuriate them and fuel their selfish desires even more. I've seen people like that. They, they fail, they make a mistake, and the infuriation and the disappointment of that drives them further into that negative thing. And there are others who arrest themselves there. Rewind. And get in the presence of God. The second key is get smaller. Do you remember when you were a child? I don't know if um, you have children or you've been able to witness how they behave and how they interact. But they're small. They're small. And from here, everything is bigger than them. They have the most advantageous perspective. They're down here looking up at everything. And everything's amazing. Everything's huge, isn't it? Everything's like, wow, that's really impressive. It's a heart of humility when you're at this perspective. The trouble with getting older is you get bigger. And things become smaller than you. And things become beneath you. And as an adult, I have to choose to assume this position. Because from this position, I can actually thank God. I can take stock of my life from a different perspective. I'm no, looking, no longer looking down maybe with disappointment or I'm no longer impressed anymore. And now I'm at this perspective like a child and I'm going, wow. Do you know what I've noticed? I can travel the whole world, see everything, tick off all my bucket list items, have all the fancy toys and still be empty. But when you position yourself from a place of smallness as in humility, you're full, you're appreciative, you're thankful. That's humility. The heart of a child, and Jesus said it many times, the heart of a child, they're the ones that get it. They're the ones that inherit the kingdom. But those of us who are adults and we think we've got it all sorted out, nothing's impressive anymore, we miss the point. We've got to get small again. We've got to get small again. Perspective of a child. From down here. Thank you, God, that I'm alive. Thank you that I'm breathing. Thank you that I'm healthy. Thank you that I get to do this. Thank you for all the small things in my life that actually are big things when I look at them from this perspective. Get smaller. Pride tells me that I deserve more. Humility tells me what I really deserve. And so I get smaller by choice. I humble myself again and reconnect with a degree of grace through thanks and obedience. Listen, humility leads to obedience. Obedience leads to life. It's so simple. Scripture lays out all these upside down kingdom thinking. When we're humble, we're obedient in those things. And our obedience leads to life. Don't overcomplicate it. Just be a kid that goes, really, God? Okay. You said so, so I'll do it. You said so, so I'll do it. I know my kids, they come to me and they ask me for direction and insight. I give it to them and they go, great, thanks. 
noted, done, put to bed, sorted. They're not then asking me about the hermeneutics behind it and the interpretation of it. They just come to learn and be taught and they do it. It's programming. And we need to be that with God. Humble, obedient, full of life. It only comes in that order. There's no shortcuts. Let's all stand to our feet this morning. Could I have the team back up? I'd love for us just to sing this for a moment. I want to ask you a question. If you could just close your eyes. We want to reflect this morning. I want to ask you, in what situation of your life have you lost trust in God? What circumstance? Is it a work situation? Is it a relationship? Is it health? In what circumstance in your life have you lost trust with God and you've taken control of that thing, maybe out of fear or a need for self-preservation? We're going to sing this for a moment. I'd love for you just to reflect on that and surrender it afresh this morning. Surrender it over to God again. God, at the end of the day, my life is yours. At the end of the day, this situation is not too big for you. Let's do that. Let's worship. Let's surrender it to God again.